Alrighty, welcome to tonight's presentation, Pearl and Andy Lockwood from Lockwood College Prep. Hello, Pearl. Hello, Andy. Hello, everybody. It's been a long time since we did a, um, a joint presentation, right? Yep. How do you feel? Raring to go. <laughs> okay. Um, so let's see if you guys can see and hear mm -hmm. us okay, because uh, like I said, it's been a while since we were in this studio. I'm just making sure the tech works. <clears throat> Everything seemed to work okay in the beginning. And this is a uh, presentation, interactive presentation, because we're going to be fielding your questions on the new rules of what it takes to get into a top college and the new financial aid rules, what it takes to pay for college today. Because there have been some, um, according to some pundits, seismic and tectonic changes to uh, financial aid, particularly the rules. So we're going to spend a lot of time talking about how to navigate yourself around those rules, what the timing is, what the changes are, uh, how to qualify for more money so that you can actually afford to send your kids to college. And uh, we're also going to be talking a little bit about some college admissions updates. The Supreme Court had a ruling that uh, impacted uh, how college acceptances and college admissions works. Um, just to date stamp this, this is the beginning of October, and I'm in, uh, I am in the throes of uh, looking at essay after essay after essay, common application after common app after common app. So I'm going to give you some, I guess, inside baseball type of feedback on what's happening, what I'm seeing in terms of essays and activities being described, and who's going to do the best and who's not going to do so well. And that type of thing. So, can everyone see and hear us? Okay. Uh, if you can, just let us know in the shy. chat. Yeah, let us know in the Tell chat. And then we'll get going because we hate talking to just ourselves when we do a webinar. Uh, who is with us today? Lorraine from Mineola. Great. Pete, Pete. from nice. Parts Unknown. Yeah, we've got Great. a whole lot of people registered tonight. So, uh, Angela, Leslie. All right, great. Where are you guys from? Just always interesting. All right. Great. While they're telling us, just where are people from? Uh, <laughs> so far, we're a little shy about where we live, but we are. We don't want your address. Gladly saying hello. Okay. And hello. All right, Pete from LA, nice. Stanford, Connecticut, coast Rural to coast, River, New York. Any flyover states? Any Syracuse. Yeah. All right. Wait a second. Is that my friend, Stuart? The guy who I met in Geneseo? I think it might be. Okay. <laughs> um, Make yourself known if that's so. All right. Let's jump in. Um, let me talk a little bit about the uh, college admissions stuff first, and then we'll get right into the money, and then we'll take your questions. This is not a formal presentation. We're not selling anything. Um, this is just to get some information out that's going to be a lot different than the, um, you know, the typical college night that uh, most high schools are having right now in the beginning of, of October. I'm actually speaking at a couple, so this is a little bit of a preview. Maybe, um, maybe some people are watching this and they will uninvite me after this. I don't know. So let's talk a little bit about college uh, admissions first. <clears throat> so. Um, the Supreme Court has made it officially unla unlawful to admit people on the basis of race, uh, uh, race only. However, colleges still have you know all these uh, diversity goals, and it looks like the way that they are trying to achieve those diversity goals is by offering uh, applicants an ability to talk about their backgrounds, what communities they are from, and words like that in essays, which I actually think is appropriate. Supreme Court Justice uh, Roberts seemed to open the door to, to uh, allowing that, um, not as an end around, but as a way for applicants to describe not uh, why they're you know black and should be let in, but how they might've been discriminated against what obstacles they overcame and how that informed their experiences and how that would then, you know, not so indirectly add to the community at large uh, in, in college. So one of the issues that um, a lot of kids have from families that, um, uh, that that we work with 
is some some of these kids don't really have those types of experiences. They don't have um, discrimination types of dramatic stories, you know, that they can that can point to and they can write about. But that's okay. You don't need to have that. That's just an opening to talk about your background, your community, and all that. So um, an Italian-American kid can talk about having a family dinner every Sunday night and, you know, shooting the breeze and soaking up wisdom from other family members. That That is just as valid as, uh, as, as someone who had a different experience from a different race or ethnicity. So, so these new questions, they're not totally new, but they're more prevalent this year than last year. They are an opportunity to describe something about yourself that is interesting. When you're applying to college, this is what a lot of people don't understand. When you're writing essays, you're, you're really trying to differentiate yourself from tens of thousands of other kids who basically look the same as you do on paper in terms of your grades and your SAT or ACT scores, if you're submitting them. And I'm going to talk about that. Um, but at the core of that mission is to be interesting, not necessarily original. That's, that's a comment I I've encountered over the summer and a lot now. And every year, I guess, with essay writing, when someone will say something like, well, I want to write this, but I don't feel like it's too ori original. And I'll say, look, the standard is not original because you're in most cases applying to a college with an admissions officer that might have been working there for three to five years or longer, who reviews something like a thousand applications each year. And some applications have uh, five or six, or um, I was just talking to a client right before we got on here, eight essays. You're not gonna come up with something original in, in most cases. You might, but you're don't don't feel badly if you're not. The standard is interesting. It's not original. So, <clears throat> when you are writing when you are assembling an application when you're in ninth or tenth grades think about what you can do to make yourself more interesting more valuable what experiences can you have that will, such as taking on leadership or initiative or going deep in some area um the term i hate is passion project i hear, I hear that all the time it's, it's like it's so annoying to me because you know it's like over it's over corporatized too yeah and it's just a drop down filtered yeah i mean i'm you know i'm passionate about lying on the couch and watching football every sunday i don't i don't think it's going to get me into college no. or or some i can't find someone to pay me for that <laughs> uh but you you certainly can go deep in, in some area and um i, I just want to talk briefly about the the components of, of getting in to college because i feel like this gets lost in, in the shuffle so what's on the record is everything you've done from ninth grade forward. So ninth grade is really the time to be thinking about the raw material that you're going to be assembling to apply to college. By the way, it's not necessarily, this is not some like dog whistle to say, this is when you should work with a college advisor. Yeah, we, we do have a handful of kids every year who start with us that early. Most kids don't. Um, but I think the reason for that is they're just not ready to be coached. You know, they're, not, they're, they're, they're too immature and, and that's, you know, that, that's fine. It's not a judgment. So as you encounter choices of um, classes, you know, your courses, your, your clubs, your extracurriculars, what you do out of school, what you do over the summer, et cetera, what you should be thinking about is what's going to be, number one, valuable to me. And number two, what's going to, uh, you know, look good on the college application in, in, in that order, not, not the reverse. A lot of people look at that in, in reverse mm -hmm. order. But the main thing, I should say, or 60% of the application that gets judged when you apply to college is number one, your GPA. Number two, your rigor, like meaning how many AP or IB classes. Um, I was talking to a client earlier today who's a senior and unfortunately, She's not doing well in uh, a STEM AP class, and she thinks that her best case scenario is in like in the seventies. This is her uh, her first marking period for senior year, and she's applying to I think she's applying early decision to an uh, an Ivy caliber school. And she said, "What do you think?" I said, "Well, you're competing with many kids." who will have taken the same number or more AP classes. You're competing with kids all over the country. You're not competing only with kids in your private school or your, your high school. 
which he didn't realize. And, and a lot of people don't realize that. There's no quotas at a given high school. I, that, that probably sounds blasphemous or incorrect. So you, you decide whether that's true, uh, whether you believe that or not. But every admissions officer I've ever had working for us or I've ever talked to has reassured me that there are no quotas at any given high school, even though parents may think that mm-hmm. or guidance counselors might think that. You're competing with kids all over the, really all over the world, but definitely all over the country. Anyway, so the conversation was along the lines of, well, I have, uh, my best case scenario is a 75. Should I drop, you know, this AP STEM class? And I said, well, neither is a really good outcome because if you drop the class, then you're going to be applying to this top college and she's going to, into a STEM major also. Mm-hmm. So you're going to be applying to the top college almost like you have one hand tied behind your back. Yeah. Uh, on the other hand, you can't have a 75. So given the two evils, I would remove the class and not show a 75, not give them that reason to exclude you. But they're going to have another reason to exclude you, which is that you're not showing enough rigor. So high GPA is great, but a lot of people don't understand that you also need to get into a top school. Right. Not everyone's gunning for a top school. But they look at whether you challenge yourself by taking the hardest classes that, that you can take. And, and the double-edged sword of, of attending a high school that offers many AP classes is that if you don't avail yourself of that opportunity, then you're going to be looked at negatively compared to yeah. um, people who don't have that opportunity at their high schools. So grades and score and, and, uh, and rigor are the really important things. And the third thing is your test scores. But as you know, and I get this question every day too. Lob in your questions, by the way, about this stuff. I'm not. I, I am monologuing, but I don't want to make this. I don't want to make this a monologue because uh, Pearl has a lot to say about financial aid stuff too. That's all right. <laughs> um, at most colleges, it seems like up to fifty percent of kids are not submitting their scores, and this this varies. But not submitting your scores and getting in are two different things. And the thing is, is that if your GPA is slightly under par and your rigor is slightly under par, and those are the three things, and you take away your scores, you take away one of those factors, then these other two become more important. So it's much better to have high grades and high rigor and low scores versus hypothetically a kid who's got mediocre grades and, and high scores. You very rarely get into college if you have high scores offsetting low rigor and low GPA. But if you're going test optional, just understand that all you're doing is you're removing one of those academic components. Those other two, just by simple logic, become much more important. And frankly, one of the reasons why college acceptances have dropped so much is because of test optional policies and a tsunami of applications going in from kids who are not qualified to begin with because they come up short in the GPA and, and the rigor also. So those three things together, grade scores and rigor, roughly 60% of the equation. Will you just explain what rigor means? Yeah, it means AP classes or IB, international baccalaureate classes. Um, it doesn't mean honors really. I mean, in theory it does, but in, in practice it doesn't. And it doesn't mean college level in, in practice. So load up with AP and IB. Um, there is a phenomenon of kids who have high GPAs and low test scores. Yeah. I, get convers- I, you know, I have conversations about that all the time. A big reason for that is because of grade inflation. There's, there's a ton of grade inflation a- across every high school, practically. So it's going to be very interesting to see what happens when, when you, you admit more kids who don't uh, t- take tests. So. Anyway, that's outside the scope of tonight. Um, so then the other 40%, right? So, so, so 60% is academic. The other 40 non-academic um, percent is a combination of things that you can control, like your extracurricular activities and uh, you know, leadership and initiative and, and things like that. And then there's stuff that's out of your control, like uh, did your parents attend that college? Where did you, you know, what high school did you go to? You know, what part of the country are you from? And then, you know, race and ethnicity and, and all that subject to the recent Supreme Court ruling. So my advice on that, and this is where we spend a lot of time with our clients on, is you need to be thinking early and often about what can you do that is atypical, that is not the same as everyone else. So when I ask, when I'm meeting potential clients and I'm trying to get a handle on the types of things that they do outside of school or 
outside of class, I should say, in school and out of school, um, if the first thing they say is, well, you know, I'm in uh, Spanish Honor Society, I'm in, you know, uh, National Honor Society, that's, there's nothing wrong with that. But if you, if you go to the ceremony, we've got four, you know, we have four kids and we've been to, uh, I guess, three ceremonies or, or two ceremonies for, for uh, National Honor Society. Um, roughly 70%, 75% of the kids at any given high school make it into National Honor Society. So if that's all you got, that's not going to get you into a top college. What you need to be thinking about is atypical, not typical, but atypical and consistent atypical student activities. CASA, consistent atypical student activities, C-A-S-A, right? That's a writer downer to be thinking about because you don't want to be this, what we call the born again junior who in 11th grade, a mom wakes up and says, oh my God, you haven't done anything. You've been on Xbox for two years. Uh, You need to to run. Don't worry, I'll do it for you. You need to put together a three-on-three basketball tournament to wipe out... uh, breast cancer, autism, and a disease to be named later, right? So that's, you know, an admissions officer see right through that. That's the passion project, you know, the last minute passion project. Um, there's someone, you know. Well, if it smacks of being disingenuous, it'll come off as disingenuous. Anything last minute is going to raise an eyebrow, which is why I get, I'm on the, you might be too, I'm on the email list of um, a, a college advisor um, who, she's a very good marketer. Uh, she kicks my butt, I think, in, in, t- in how prolific she is with, with her emails. But she taps this passion project type mm-hmm. thing. And she's doing it right up to the summer with, you know, with uh, um, seniors. Mm-hmm. I'm like, how are you going to start a, a project now? That's like the stupidest thing. Besides the fact that I hate the term. Yeah. <clears throat> so anyway, um, every step of the way, you need to be thinking about, okay, well, what, what can I do that's going to be personally valuable to me? That's, that's where I start with these types of discussions. Maybe it's in terms of exploring a career or maybe it's in terms of some sort of charitable or uh, community service type thing that's important to you or important to the family or, or something like that. And, and then what can you do to separate yourself? And that's usually by having impact. And you know, look, that's, that's not just a get into college skill. That's, that's a life skill. Like the people who do the best in life are the ones who get involved with, with things. And that's why it's not a coincidence that that's what it takes to get into a top college. And the, the kids that we know who get into, um, you know, top colleges, we have, we have two kids who are in, you know, what I would consider top colleges and uh, our, our clients, they tend to have resumes that, that almost leap off the page pages. Our daughter, Sammy's resume was like five pages. I don't know if you saw the final version last year. Um, they, they, they just reek of involvement and impact and leadership and initiative and character. Mm-hmm. So that's really what you need to be thinking about all along and not just following the herd and doing the same thing that everyone else is doing. All right. So let's get into the money again. If there's any comments or, or questions. I'm gathering the questions. So if you see your question drop yeah. off all of a sudden, we're collecting them. Okay. Are there any admissions questions or should we get right into the. Well, that's, a, that's great. Okay. There are a couple. Um, are colleges viewing AP classes and early college experience classes equally in terms of rigor? No, the AP class is the king and and IB and the early, I'm not sure exactly what you mean by the early experience, but it could mean, you know, take a super class, the Syracuse university, something class. You can do that in high school or there there are other uh, colleges that do that. Okay. And another question, what's wrong with college level? dual enrollment courses why are they not good for admissions i'm not saying they're not good i'm just saying that in general ap classes are um, treated at a higher level but if you're actually taking classes at a local community college or something that that is actually very good okay we're good yeah all right so let's talk about um can i interview you that will that be easier on sure. some of the financial aid stuff okay. all right so so um so, so this year the financial aid rules are uh, are, are, are have changed we don't know exactly when the federal form, the FAFSA, is coming out, but we know it's December. Right. Well, right. They are legally obligated. The Department of Education is legally obligated to release it or to come out with it by December 31st, 2023. Okay. So before we get into what some of the they changes are, the, 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 the big changes are, and there's probably three or four big changes that we should talk about. 
um, talk about the timing. Like when when is everything due? Okay. With, so so just as a as a background here, I, I'm back. I was going to launch into the two forms. No, your background. So so Pearl, we're both recovering attorneys. Pearl was a prosecutor. I was a corporate guy. That's like in the '90s. That's ancient history. Now Pearl files approximately 400 people's worth of financial aid applications uh, a year. And that's year after year after year. So, you know, this is this is a good opportunity to ask her any uh, type of financial aid questions. So so there, there's a lot of nuances. There's different there's different financial aid applications. School, there's different deadlines, all that. So let's talk about some of the nitty gritty first. And then we'll talk about some of the changes. And then we'll talk about some strategies to get more money. Okay. Sounds good. So when do they do? So when are they due? They are due, meaning they, meaning the financial aid forms, when your school tells you that they're due. Okay, so let me break that down. <clears throat> the two main forms for financial aid are the FAFSA, which determines your federal aid, your federal eligibility for federal aid, I should say. Um, that form, which is accepted, required at all schools, um, is not going to come out, as I said, probably the earliest deadline you should see, I would think is not going to be before January 1st, because it is likely not going to come out until the end of December. And without glitches, I don't know, I doubt it. So don't panic about this. The schools all know this. So deadlines that may have been for last year or you or may seem to say December or as soon as possible or something like that, it'll be when it is actually available to the to the world at large. So don't panic. But the FAFSA, as unlike years in the prior, which the FAFSA normally comes out October 1st, is not going to be really available till about January. Okay. The other form, which is called the CSS profile, is required by those schools that have institutional aid to to provide. So those schools, how do you know? Well, if the school's website says that they require both the FAFSA and the CSS profile, then you need to file both the CSS profile and the FAFSA for that school to adequately apply for financial aid at that school. Okay, the CSS profile, on the other hand, has not undergone a major change this year and it is available October 1st. So for those of you applying to schools that require the CSS profile, if you are applying early action or early decision, you will have one set of deadlines for priority financial aid deadlines. It should not be confused with your admissions deadlines. Yep. Okay. Common. Common. Yep. Um, and if you are applying regular decision to that school that requires the CSS profile, your deadline may be later. So it is really important to for your list of schools. In my own practice, I identify of an entire student's list of schools, which school has the earliest deadline, and then I file to all of the schools according to that deadline. So for now, it would just be the CSS profile that's available. Okay, so we've gone over the deadlines are according to what your school tells you. So, and, and, and sometimes there are other uh, applications that are required too, right? That's right. So a school may also have, there are a handful of schools that have their own institutional form as well, like Penn, like Princeton, like Georgia Tech, like a lot of schools. Again, you need to reference and rely on the school's own website for what they require. And as the point is probably obvious at this point, there is not uniformity between the schools as to what they require. So, all right. So, um, before we get into the changes, what happens? Okay. So, so you gather up all this information, okay. tax returns, information about your savings accounts, right. all sorts of other biographical stuff, right. W-2s, 1099s. It's, it's a lot of crap. If you're going to do this yourself, you need to be very organized and, yeah. and meticulous. Yes. Okay. Then you file. Yes. Then what happens? You get money. So then you file, and that really, as I say, feels like it's the end of the process because you finally put all this stuff together and you filed. No, that is actually, you're basically like, <laughs> to use a pickleball reference, a current pickleball, no. lobbing it over. Sorry, I actually have never played. But, you know, lobbing when your When is that fad going to be over? Across the net. Um, I'm sorry. The school gets triggered to, that you are interested in applying for financial aid, and they become aware 
And at that point, they're going to see internally what do they require to evaluate your financial aid at that school. And they're going to some schools will make no further requests and other schools will follow up with many other requests that are either something required at that school or something in your specific financial aid application that gives rise to additional questions. For example, if you own a business, if you're self or you in part own a business, then there is likely to be at an institutional school that has requires the CSS profile. They're likely to ask additional questions about that business and it, your asset positions, your losses, your expenses, your debts, etc. Um, they may require a subsequent form called the business farm supplement, which basically details some of this information. It gives more color to these businesses that are owned, for example. Um, once you uh, reply with every request that the school's well, asking for, and one, this happens one, one over. Mm -hmm. Let me interrupt you. Yes. Who gets these emails? Well, it, it is always going to be the student, but it could be the student and sometimes the parent, but not always the parent. Parent needs so what to, is your recommendation? So my recommendation <laughs> yeah. as this a matter is a of housekeeping one. is schedule a once a week time with your child student um, that is mutually convenient. Let's just for the purpose of this, it's called Sunday at five, um, where started? you just go right through. Uh, the emails, and maybe you want to have a dedicated email for all these college financial aid and applications. All right, but if not, you just once a week, so you do not make yourself nuts every single day checking, checking, checking. And once a week, you go through it, you see who's requiring what, you make a list, you, you take care of it. No, that's fine in terms of timeliness. Responding within a week is fine, um, just to keep things, keep track of things. Okay, and just understand, one school may be asking for several follow-up documents and another school isn't asking for nothing. You should not read into that as some kind of indication that you are or are not going to be admitted at that school. It's simply, here's the admissions process, here's the financial aid process, and eventually those two things meet because you're not going to get a financial aid package from a place that doesn't admit you. Um, but don't read into things like that. Just and and respond in kind. If you are asked for X, Y, and Z, you provide X, Y, and Z, not X, Y, and Z, and then the whole first half of the alphabet. Okay. Yeah, less is more. Right. But that that point about not reading into it. I mean, it's it's so easy in this whole you know whether it's financial aid or admissions to I didn't hear you. Does that mean something or I've heard other people have heard this. Like, how come we haven't? Yeah, don't. It's a long, long. Stay away from the water cooler. It's, <laughs> it's a long journey. Another word I hate. Um, there will be ups and it's downs. It's true. But you, you, ha you have to discipline yourself. And this is all, I would say the last three minutes here have been in the category of easier said than done. Yeah. I will admit that. But you have to discipline yourself to not uh, be swayed by the latest shiny object or which may or, or may or not be danger so. that you've heard. Yeah, exactly. May yeah. not be so. Yeah. All right. So, all right. Um, and then once the awards come back. Right. So eventually you will, and this back, don't, don't let the back and forth of it freak you out either or stress you out. And I'm only, I'm only saying this because historically I just know what some people sort of respond to. Um, some people. Right. Some people. Lots right. Like, people get used to being asked multiple times for the same thing and, and for things that you know are willing to bet your life on it that you've sent in, they've acknowledged, they have, you see it. But there are bots often at the other end of these emails. I know you, you, you we entrust and, and feel so, you know, wonderful about these higher institutions of learning, but, you know, they don't always have their act together little secret I'm letting it in on. Um, so you will get, you know, emails for things that they have and you will just think they're right because it came from the school. So they're missing and something didn't happen right and relax. Okay. It, it often just things cross or it takes a while for 
their sites to yeah. update. Someone, there's humans there who are actually entering data, and they, they don't do it instantly. It all ultimately, you know, you did, and it did, and whatever. If they really are missing something, eventually they will hunt you down and hound you for it. Otherwise, it will eventually catch up, and eventually, if your student's been admitted, they will prepare. And if you've applied for a financial aid package and your student gets admitted to that school, you will receive, that student will receive a financial aid package, even if it were going to be comprised entirely of loans, for example. I'm just saying, it does. it's not the case that you, oh, I applied and my kid got in, but we didn't hear back, so they didn't give us anything. It doesn't work like that, okay? If you apply, you get in, you will get an award package uh, for your student. And at that time, there's an opportunity before you commit, um, well, even after you commit, but to try to negotiate to improve the financial aid award. Yeah. And so let's, do you want to speak uh, to that a no, little? So or am I getting out of the scope? Here? No, 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 that's, that's, this is the right timeline. But okay. let's, uh, now let's get back. I will talk about negotiating, yeah. but now let's talk a little bit about, um, first, some of the changes. And then I want to talk about some of the strategies to improve aid. Okay. Um, if um, why, why don't you post the um, the strategy session? So okay. so I'm just going to post this right now. There there is uh, like I said, there's nothing to buy here. But if you are interested in potentially working with us, then um, because you're watching this webinar, there's no charge to speak to us. If this is the, if this is the first time, uh, you get one freebie. But normally, when people sit down out of the blue off the street, you know it's uh, it's seven hundred and forty nine dollars to get a uh, a full blown consultation and report that summarizes everything. This is a free twenty minute Zoom or uh, or phone call. So that's up. Yes. Posted? Okay. All right. So um so so three categories of families I think we should talk about that mm -hmm. are going to be affected by these changes are yeah. number one um, people with siblings you know multiple kids in college number yeah. two divorced families yeah. and number three business owners um, uh, a, a little bit so so talk about the siblings okay issue sibling so, discount so to speak um all right so before this year. Uh, the FAFSA, the, or the federal methodology of determining federal eligibility for aid, um, which the school schools use either entirely or if they are a, a CSS profile requiring school, they will use both the information from the FAFSA as well as the CSS profile. Okay, so on the FAFSA, if you, when you submit the FAFSA, it in the past, you it would generate what's called an EFC, which is a number that the federal government deems that your family can pay for one year of college. And if there is such a scenario where you submit the FAFSA and you have one student who is in college and your EFC is $60,000, then at a school that costs approximately $60,000, you would not, that student would not be demonstrating any need-based eligibility. Same set of facts. However, this one student actually has a sibling that's also in college at the same time. So now that same financial information with now two siblings in school, that EFC of 60 for once would actually be $30,000. It is. It was split in half. So therefore, in the same set of facts, with a school that costs about $60,000, if your EFC is $30,000 because you are having the benefit of the sibling discount, you would therefore qualify for need-based, you'd show need-based eligibility at that school. Unfortunately, that uh, discount for the multiple sibling in school is going away this year. For the beginning, the 24-25 school application aid year, they are getting rid of the multiple sibling discount. And if you have one, two, or 10 school kids in school at the same time on the FAFSA, your EFC, which is going to be the same. But. Wait, before you get into that, just to make things more complicated, they're retiring the term EFC. Now it's going to be student aid index Sorry, or SAI. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Thank you. Well, it's like so stupid. Like the, 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 this is a big but change. But it is for whatever it's yeah, worth. Just, it, it, we right. want to be accurate. Okay. All right. So, however, 
those schools requiring the CSS profile. Which do, are who? Which are uh, those schools that have institutional aid to provide and are what that translates into, like all the IVs and all of the schools that are more generous and are more expensive and have more money and it's like aid four, to give. about 400 colleges. And it is about 400 of the 4,000 or so schools that are out there. Yes. Um, so those now schools, those schools are, are, you know, they are silent as to that change or making such a change. They are still asking for all of the information about other siblings, where they go to school, what the cost is for those schools, et cetera, as they have in years past. So I am not sure until we embark on this year what the treatment of the multiple siblings in schools at those schools is going to be. But as far as your FAFSA-only schools, that that rule, unfortunately, will, will very meaningfully change uh, the SAI or your financial eligibility. Yeah. So, under um, the federal rules. So, so here at Lockwood College Prep, we're not necessarily panicking yet. By the way, we have, we have three kids in college this year. Um, so <laughs> uh, we're, we're not panicking yet because our belief, just from industry chatter, is that although this is a rule change going into effect, if you're already in the throes of college and you've relied on that discount, that sibling discount, mm -hmm. um, previously, we, it's our hope, reasonable hope, that colleges are not going to pull the rug out from under those families that have already been relying on that. Um, we've also, I've also read um, from various sources uh, that, many colleges are going to allow the um, that, that actual argument as a basis to appeal an award, which is that, uh, you know, every, every year we've been getting this financial aid works. So we have two kids in college at least, and now all of a sudden we can't, you know, we're not getting that. Can you please help us? They may do a, a one-time, all right, we're going to consider it, you know, just, just for this year, just to help you out a little bit. So it's not, it's not written in stone. There's a lot of guessing. We'll know in a few months. We'll, we'll know in a few months is right. Yeah. Can we move on to yep. divor divorce families? We sure can. Okay. Uh, so uh, the overall, how, how this works generally in terms of the financial aid forms, a custodial parent needs to be um, selected as between the, the separated or divorced parents. Uh, so on the FAFSA, only one parent, only the custodial parent, and only that parent's financial asset and, and income information will be reported on the FAFSA. Okay, so what's changed is determining what makes a custodial parent, who, which parent goes on that form. I'll, I'll get back to that in a minute. The CSS profile, on the other hand, required by about 400 schools, uh, will ask a few pieces of information about the non-custodial parent, just some name, occupation, is there an agreement uh, regarding child support uh, or and or college, couple of questions with no other financial information of the non-custodial parent being required or being asked for, none of it, not the asset, not the income, nothing. However, a subset of the 400 schools requiring uh, that that require that uh, require the CSS profile. A subset of those 400 will also require a non-custodial parent profile to be filed, which is a mirror image of the CSS profile, and it asks for all the asset and income information of that non-custodial parent. And then ultimately, that school requiring both pieces will allot a different percentage to each the custodial and the non-custodial parent in terms of what the award is. However, now I will get back to my original point. Yes. What makes this the custodial parent and what's different? Before this year, the custodial parent was deemed the parent with whom the student resided with in the most recent 12 months. Okay, so clearly there was some massageability, et cetera, and so forth. All right, that is gone. Goodbye. Well, so, so I'm at the risk of sounding sexist and, you know, whatever, cisgender. Um, the, this <laughs> deal with it. You married it. Um, in, in, in many cases, the mom 
the ex, you know, the divorced mom was the one that the kid lived with and the mom had the low income. And that mom would do okay with, with financial aid because her income was lower, whereas the ex-spouse dad, maybe he was the one who, you know, was, was the uh, breadwinner. He was not considered to be the custodial parent. Okay, so now. So what? now, here are the rules. And I am just going to read because it, it's quite nuanced really? and it's really, yeah, and it's important. Really? Uh, yes. Number one, the parent who pays child support is the parent of record, the custodial parent. If, if that child support amounts to more than half of the student's support. Parent, number two, parental income and assets for a student whose parents are divorced or separated but not remarried is determined by including only the income and assets of the parent who provides the greater portion of the student's financial support. Basically the same thing. And it doesn't matter if a parent pays child support if that support does not amount to at least half of that child's support. All right. So okay. correct, correct me if I'm wrong. In most cases, mm -hmm. the parent that provides the support is going to be declaring that child as a dependent on his tax return, again, cisgender, et cetera. And, and that is going to be the person filing, which is going to you know, uh, hurt many people who normally under the previous rules, the single moms who would have gotten financially. Right. Is that um, it, and basically accurate? Basically accurate. My comment again would be um, the argument really is how much is that child support being given? And then you as the, let's say, res residential parent, yeah. if you are, you know, you're paying your mortgage, you're paying your food, your expenses, all your bills, all yeah. of that comes in as support. Okay. So if that's more than so that's a term of art support. Well, in, that is what rules? this seems to say, because originally there was initially there was discussion that whichever parent uh, um, claimed the student on the tax return was deemed the custodial parent for financial aid purposes. However, that was just a, one, a bit simplistic Two, still will throw into haywire all families that have had their divorce and separation agreements that predate uh, now, which are a okay. lot of families. Yeah. But so this is just, it's, it's a bit more fair because they're trying to keep the responsibility with the one who's financially most responsible. Yeah. And so they're not saying it's de facto that parent who gives child support according to a family court judge but rather the overall support of that child, which includes consideration of what that child support is. Okay. I think okay. in most cases that what they're, uh, when, when you take the 30,000 foot view, what they're trying to do is align the IRS rules with yes. the federal financial aid rules, two right. separate bodies, you know, Title IV, uh, Department of Education versus Department of Treasury IRS rules. So um, this is an attempt just to make things simple, but I think it's, Throwing the baby out with the bathwater in many cases. And again, like we were saying before, the chatter is the buzz in the industry is that schools will try to honor yeah. the way families would have logically relied on it for those families that are already in school. Okay, hope so. Mm -hmm. um, all right, so let me cover the business stuff, uh, the business yeah. owners, real quick. So, um, under the old rules, <clears throat> anyone who owned a business that employed fewer than 100 employees could put down the value of their business on the FAFSA as being zero. There's a question to value your business if you own, if you are self-employed. Um, most people didn't know that, right? Even the accountants we have as clients uh, didn't know that. So that's this is not such a big deal in terms of how many are going to be impacted, but for us, it's kind of crappy because that was one of our pet go-to strategies. Um, the way it, I, I, would, I would suggest you approach this now, if you are self-employed and you own a business and you're supposed to, answer a question about the value of your business is to be pretty pessimistic. Like there's a difference between um, selling your business on the open market at arm's length versus I've got to sell it in seven days because, you know, the, the FBI is closing in and I've got to sell off all my meth lab equipment or, you know, whatever you do for a living. So, um, so that's one way just to kind of think about this value of a business is in the eye of, of the beholder. So you want to be pessimistic on, on paper. 
Um, but there are other loopholes, right, that, that we should be talking about. So, so for business owners in particular, there are a, um, a series of provisions in the task code, which our accountant, the, the legend, self, self <laughs> calls himself the legend, uh, Rick, refers to as tax scholarships, which are basically ways to unlock cash from your business by availing yourself of certain tax strategies, which are different for everyone, but it could be um, forming a, a sister company that's a C-Corp that stores earnings and channeling um, you know, money there in a legitimate way, management contracts, putting your kids on payroll, it could be leasing, uh, gifting and leasing back. There, you know, there's probably seven or eight total um, types of, of strategies that we look at with our clients to help them obtain tax scholarships, our self-employed clients. But in terms of loopholes for uh, everyone, really, what you need to understand about the financial aid rules, and these are not changing, is that the, the main factor is your income. There's no magic ceiling. Like if you go over it, it's, it's, you're not going to qualify for anything. But there are certain rules of thumb, which you know, I, can, I can give you. If you're applying to a private college, the, clo the closer you get to that $200,000 adjusted gross income number, the harder it is to qualify for anything, unless you have more than one kid in college at the same time. That's at a private school that's not, hopefully not going to be affected by the uh, financial aid rules, the, the federal rules. So private versus federal. And then if you're trying to get money from um, a state university, either in your or out of your state, either to get federal funds, you need to be very low income-wise, maybe fifty or $60,000. Um, a lot of states like the state of New York have programs where you can make up to $125,000 and you'll qualify for the Excelsior program. And, uh, and many other states have similar types of merit um, opportunities like that. Then what you need to be looking at is where have you saved your money? And some assets count against you more than others. Some don't count against you at all. The stuff that counts against you more than others that penalizes you more is money in your kids' names. <clears throat> so that generally means custodial accounts like UTMA and UGMA. It doesn't mean 529s. 529s are supposed to be considered parent assets. One of the rule changes, by the way, is about a particular setup of a 529 where if a grandparent or someone else, not the parent, owned the 529 under the old rules, if that money was used to pay for college, there'd be a penalty the following year. Under the new rules, this is actually one good change. Yeah. Under the new rules, there's no penalty for someone else paying. So that's a good thing. But the thing about the 529 in general is if you know, most 529s are owned by parents, those penalize you. It's not, you know, how much. It's, it's you know, it's, I'm sorry. It's not whether they penalize you. It's how much. So for the most part, most colleges will penalize you at a lower amount, 5% of that total balance in your 529. Some of the private schools will still penalize you like it's a child asset, um, which is about 25% of that amount. So if you have $100,000 saved in your child's name, you're going to lose eligibility of about $25,000. If it's saved in your name, like a mutual fund or something, you're penalized at 5%. And if you put it in something that's exempt, zero. You don't, you don't have any penalty on that. Um, so the things that are exempt are, number one, retirement accounts, any 401k or 403b, et cetera, any balance in your pension, those are all exempt. And they and people make mistakes by putting these on, that's disclosing these in the financial aid applications. Yeah. This year's application is going to be streamlined, supposedly from 108 questions down to 36, but there's going to be a bunch of sub-questions. So it's still going to be easy to make these mistakes, as, as far as I'm concerned. You'll, yeah. you'll see when they come out. So retirement accounts are exempt. They, they From the FAFSA. Don't, yeah. Well, they're okay. So they're exempt from calculation, right? Okay. Sorry. I'm just talking about the FAFSA yes, right, right now. Sorry. I accept your apology. Um, doesn't happen much, but when it does, I accept it. Okay. Um, uh, insurance products are exempt. Uh, life insurance with cash value. Annuities are exempt. If you have an annuity that doesn't get disclosed on the you know, you shouldn't do this by uh, by accident. They specifically say don't tell us anything about insurance or annuities. And the fourth exemption on the FAFSA is the value of your primary residence. So those are the four things that, that are exempt, you know, loopholes, legal loopholes on the financial aid applications. Uh, retirement accounts, 
life insurance, annuities, and your, your primary residence. And as Pearl was saying, the, the CSS profile, which is not shrinking in, uh, in questions, it's about 200, it could be even 300, depending on what, what colleges you're applying to, much more invasive. They ask you many more questions. I don't, we don't need to get yeah. in the weeds, but, the, but they are, um, if you're applying to a college, it takes both. One big mistake that you need to avoid is having mm-hmm. inconsistent answers across right. those two. And this year, when people are filing their CSS profiles in October, right. but their their FAFSA may be in January, yep. it's going to be it's going to be a lot easier to make that mistake yeah. to, to not have the consistencies. So true. All right. Um, where else do we have to go here tonight? Uh, negotiations, or do you have any other financial aid wisdom? Um, no, I think. Add? Okay. All right. So I'll talk a little bit about how to negotiate, how to appeal, because that that's a yeah. big deal. Sure. Um, after you get your award, that doesn't mean that it's set in stone. It's not a final award. It's an offer. So what can you do to improve it? Well, number one, if you have other offers, you can play them off against each other. I always try to do this. The best defense is a good offense. When we work with families, we try to have a strategic college list before they finalize it that consists of colleges that rival each other. So this process is not just about kids chasing you know, colleges around, colleges will, will also compete with each other. And that's a nuance that I think a lot of people don't really understand, but this is a business. These colleges have to fill seats and they don't always hit their goals. And when we work with, when I work with kids, um, I tell them all the time, look, don't think of yourself as, you know, Joey uh, applying to college. Think of yourself as you are a marketer of Joey. You're in the business of marketing this product perhaps be a kid named Joey, to get into a top school and, and to get money. So the best defense is good offense. Have colleges that compete with each other so you can play them off against each other. And they could be rivals in the same conference, or they could be colleges that are reputable in the same types of programs, but not necessarily in the same conference. Um, you know, you, you have to do a little bit of thinking and digging around, but uh, but, but colleges that compete is, is, is big. It's great to have other offers. If a college, if you made a mistake on your forms, you can usually bring that to, to their attention. If you over included, you know, like you know, you made a mistake and you included your retirement accounts, but, you know, and then you saw this webinar or something, and you're like, oh man, I shouldn't have done that. You know, that's that's an appealable thing. We talked before about an appeal about the new rules applying multiple kids in college. The yeah. the classic appeals are if you um, have a different story that they don't know about from from the numbers. So for kids who are graduating 2024. The financial aid um, year for for their income taxes is 22, but if you had a lousy 23, like we're in the 10th month of, of 2023 as we record this, they won't know about that. So you've had a change in income, so that is definitely an appealable thing, uh, a potential argument. And um, if you had some sort of unusual, extreme, dramatic expense, not I live in an area where we pay a lot of property taxes. They know that from your zip code. That's not new information. You want to give them new info. So that could be, unfortunately, um, huge medical expenses that weren't reimbursed. I was just saying this to um, uh, friends of ours yesterday. I think we've had three clients pass away um, in our practice in the last uh, four or five months. Um, and it's, you know, it's awful. But those are the types of things that uh, those are appealable on a number of fronts. It could be the expenses, the unusual expenses. It could be loss of income. You know, there's a lot, there's a lot of different circumstances that they may not know about from the financial aid applications because those tend to be retroactive or or retrospective, I should say, um, because they're two years back. So keep in mind, you always have to have new information. It's got to be significant information it can't be and something. It has to be now. It can't be something that is going to right. maybe happen. In I the might future. get laid off. Right. And it can't be something that's going to cause an eye roll, like, well, this is one of your favorites. We have a lot of expenses. I send my kids to summer camp every year. Um, you know, admissions officers, I mean, sorry, financial aid officers are usually like, you know, well, they're middle here. management guys. They make $85,000 a year. They don't live in affluent areas where they send kids to summer camp. They're not going to be sensitive to that type of thing. And what I'm about to say is true of whatever your special circumstances will be, whatever an essay is going to be, no matter what it is, the application, all of this is always going to be viewed in the context of everybody else's story, application, et cetera. So you need to have that judgment that it's not just you in a vacuum. It's your, you know, COVID story where you were 
you know, had chills for a week and missed work <laughs> is not going to hold up. And you, it may really count against you if someone else is it has a you know tragedy. God damn it, Pearl. I had sniffles, tragedy. not chills, and I was, and I was I was so sick. I was you sick. have to exercise that judgment too all along. What Pearl's saying is don't be a narcissist, don't be a hypochondriac. This goes beyond the college process. <laughs> yeah, please. Every, everything everything we're saying. Pitch in. You you <laughs> are you are getting insight into our pet peeves that we talk about every morning at like five forty-five. Um so yeah, you know, think about the whole context, and that context is beyond just yourself. Right. There. Yes. All right. So um, I think we've, you know, this has been like a tour de force, uh, about about a solid hour of trying to give you an overview. And we'll be back. <laughs> an yes. overview of um, you know, what it takes to get into a top college today, and what it takes to pay for college. Obviously, you know that th this is our our business. If you think what we said today makes sense to you, and you're interested in having a conversation. As long as this is the first time we've ever spoken, it is free. Um, as, as long as we have the room for you, I, I don't know exactly how many people are, uh, how many spots we have on the calendar because it's a crazy time of year. I don't think it's that many, but I didn't check before. Happy to chat. Are there any questions that we didn't get to? Yes. Let's. Should we answer them? Let's do it. Yeah. Let me just see if one. Or should you answer them? Snuck in here. Uh. Oh, oh. We'll tag team. How's that? All right, here we go. I'll, I'll do some of the asking. Should we do final Jeopardy music? Hmm. Do, you, do you have a cue up? No. All right. Um, I don't like Jeopardy that much. I know you don't. Even though I beat you every night. Okay. If an SAT score falls in the middle of what is accepted by certain college, should you submit or only if it exceeds the average? Yeah. Okay. Good question. I talk about that probably five times a day, some days. Here's my rule. Um, so so colleges publish their their range 25 percent to the 75th percent my rule is if you're in that range 25 to 75 i would submit if you don't submit the implication is what not that your scores were too high and you didn't want to brag right it's it's that you didn't hit those scores so that is my rule that's not something that guidance counselors necessarily agree with i was talking to a client last night actually uh, we're working with her sister now um, melinda and her son who's um, in his freshman year at his early decision school last year when he was told by his school guidance counselor at his elite private school, do not submit your scores and don't apply early decision. She ran that by me. I said, wait a minute. I, I, I thought I didn't remember correctly. He had like a 31 or 32 in his ACT. It was just above the 25th percentile. So it might've been a 30 was their bottom. He had like a 31 or 32. And um, and his, and the rest of his, his application was really strong, not just grades, um, but also his extracurricular, you know, phenomenal extracurricular activities, really great kid. And um, yeah, so she ended up taking, you know, not taking the guidance counselor's advice. She decided with me. He got in, and he got a their top scholarship also for like thirty thousand dollars a year. Hmm. Um, so so like I, I understand the guidance counselors in general. Um, I think they mean well, but a lot of times I think they're just afraid. The fear is you don't want to give an admissions officer something to reject the candidate, which I agree with. But not submitting a score that's in the range, I think, is, is silly because the only reason you don't submit is because you didn't hit that range. Right. The inference will be lower than, than your actual score. So, okay. Uh, do state schools typically match competing merit scholarships? How would you appeal a merit scholarship if the university only offers one appeal date starting in June? State schools generally don't have that much budget, so it's harder to uh, to appeal. But you follow the rules. There's no there's no magic there, it, and it does help to have other offers. But m m we do a lot better negotiating with private colleges. Is the CSS profile required for merit based aid or just need based aid? It depends on the school. If the school requires it and tells you what it's for, then you know you would determine. But m more often than not, if the school requires it. You got to fill it out. I was talking to um, a client from a couple of years ago who's not got younger kids, uh, Denise, and um, uh, she said, yeah, my daughter's applying to a bunch of schools, so I need Pearl to do the uh, the forms. So I asked her what schools, and it was kind of like, okay, that one, because she, she doesn't qualify for need-based mm -hmm, aid. Mm -hmm. I was like, okay, Fordham, yeah, you need it for that one. Uh, this one, you don't. You know, So you have to check with each college right. whether they require that. 
you know, our, our rule is, look, if one college requires um, financial aid applications for merit, you might as well apply. Exactly, year. because who does one year and who and who does or does it the next year can change. And if you want to be in full consideration for all the schools that require the CSS profile for merit consideration, submit it. All right, and here's a story we haven't talked about recently, but we talked about this uh, we, for a while. We were talking about this kind of frequently, which is that if um, uh, if you're self-employed or something along these lines, we had a client who was self-employed yeah. and it was right during uh, the beginning of, of COVID, of, you know, pandemic, and his business, which I think something like 80% of the revenue were, were based on one client, his business tanked because oh. that one client shut down oh. or stopped, stopped paying them. And then he's like, oh, wait a minute. Uh, I, I need some money mm -hmm. to be able to afford to send my child to, to I think it was Northeastern. Mm -hmm. And the problem was by the time we spoke, he was about six days too late past their deadline in June right. to even get loans. Right. So had he filed the FAFSA just- Just to preserve the for, opportunity. Yeah, just for, I was gonna say, yeah, something and giggles. Um, then then he would have, uh, right, he would have had that preservation. Right. So So that's important. To think about also yes okay uh, in the past fafsa and css were available at the same time it was more consistent in terms of the numbers on the page between the two forms now that the css will have to be submitted before the fafsa and the assets could change between the time the forms are sent in will this create more questions back to families from the financial aid departments um it depends how varied they are if they're just obvious Oh, my cash checking and savings was five thousand and four dollars on uh, when I submitted the CSS profile, and now uh, it's two thousand because I've gone for Christmas and I bought presents, and now my balance because it's now January and I'm submitting the FAFSA is two thousand bucks. They're not going to ask about that. But well, well, let me just just to, just to um, amplify that. So what I was saying before, in terms of the um, the, the formulas. Assets are only penalized around five percent, and that's why because they fluctuate. Income right. is is the most heavily considered factor in that. So a minor discrepancy, don't worry about it. And to that end, which I didn't really, we didn't get into either. Um, so for this upcoming financial aid season, twenty four twenty five, the operative tax return that is to be used from when answering all information on both the FAFSA and the CSS profile is the twenty twenty two tax return. And a lot, sometimes, if your current situation is, let's say you've been let go from that job, or you have a different job, or you're divorced or separated since that married and joint filing, circumstances are different, and you are tempted to, oh, well, let me just use different information, or I'll just use another year, or I'll just, you know, adjust those. No. You have to live and die by the 2022 tax information for these forms for submitting it. And then once you have the opportunity and a financial aid award is, is issued, you can then say, this is how my circumstances have changed. This is no longer the case and that's no longer the case. And that's how you have to handle that. I mean, this, this year, there's even less of an opportunity to even have any type of discretion. You, you, you never did, but this right. year, you, the, the IRS data just goes right into the FAFSA. Right. That's another change. It's, it's a, supposedly, we'll see, but supposedly- Streamlined. Yeah, it, we, there's, there's behind the scenes. By the way, this is this is sort of like front of the house stuff, but in the back of the house, colleges are freaked out about this because they don't have the manpower to implement all these changes. They're going to get it right, or you know, they can't hire more people. Even though they charge a lot, they they operate on very thin margins. They can, they're not going to be able to get this done. It's going to be really sloppy. There's going to be a lot of mistakes. You're going to have to be patient, yeah. and you have to be you're going to have to verify everything. You're going to really need to take a fine tooth comb and go through all of the numbers because there's going to be a lot of stuff that doesn't make sense yeah. this year. That, that's my prediction. It will come to an end though. I promise. It does. Every year it does. Feels never ending and it does come to an end. Okay. Uh, I missed that's the beginning morbid. of this session. Will you send a recording? Of yes. This? Yes. Okay. Um, is this information relevant to a Canadian applicant to a U.S. school? Well, the profile. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Uh, what about the 529? Is it for the family or just the student in college or the parent asset? It's a parent asset for the family. Right. 
because you can That's you can right. switch the beneficiaries, you know, or the the, the kids. So it's because all so if you have a five twenty nine for three kids, you know, three different five twenty nines, they're all they're all on the FAFSA. Does an emanci- does a child getting emancipated at eighteen from a parent affect the parental support? Um, if emancipated literally means by it means by legal definition, if they are legally emancipated, you see how far over you've slid. Um, oops, sorry. <laughs> If 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 a student if a student is legally emancipated, that's fine. But it can't be like little e. I am emancipated because I want to be emancipated. It has to be a legal, legally documented emancipation. You were listening. Um, Is it my breath? Do retirement accounts include IRAs and Roth IRAs? Yes. With two kids, uh, in with two kids in college, do we have to do two FAFSAs? Yes. Each student needs. Uh, their own FAFSA submitted if applying for aid. Well, you don't have to do You don't have to, but if you want to be considered for aid for both (laughs) of those college-bound students, children, yes. Oh, by the way, I was actually making a joke just just to be my annoying, obnoxious self, Mm -hmm. but a lot of people think that they have to file a FAFSA every year no matter what. You don't. I mean, really, you know, especially Mm -hmm. if you get in the first year and you get merit aid, you don't get need-based aid, and the college says, you we don't need you. Do yeah. So, so you actually, there's, there's no rule that you have to file a FAFSA at all. But you may need to at the school that awards you merit aid. You need to find out at your specific school because it could be a prerequisite to continued merit aid. Okay. When determining the custodial parent after a divorce, do we consider support provided in 2022? Yes. You do. That's the tax year. Yes, that is the operative tax year. And yes, it will. And then it says current support. Could it change year to year if the level of support changes? Yes, it can. And you will be asked on the CSS profile about your 2023 expected income. And it will specifically ask, are there any changes expected to your financial information? And there's an opportunity on the CSS profile to provide a written explanation as well. So that's how you would handle that. And then, of course, again, you would have the opportunity to explain anything away during, you know, an appeal. Um, okay. Okay. All right. We're done? Yeah. We're All right. Good. That wasn't bad. A little over an hour. Okay, guys. So thanks for joining us. Um, thanks for being part of our little community and spreading our name around like a virus, a nice, benign, cheerful virus, ray of sunshine in Pearl's case. And, uh, you know, if you have any, any questions at all, you know how to reach us. Yes. And we will be back with uh, – we, we, we want to do a whole, um, a whole workshop on the student loan repayment plans for people who have those loans. So, those are, so those that, are now do. So, yeah, now I'm pressuring you to get ready because she is the expert in that. And I'm going to grill you like a piece of fish on how that works. And we're going to give valuable information. Have a great night. Thanks for watching. Thank you for listening.